You're listening to Vernacular Podcast. Hello, I'm Zach. And I'm Sally. And you're listening to Vernacular Podcast. Welcome back. Today we have a good episode coming up with Brandon and Janet, who are going to talk to us about the very interesting projects that they are involved in. But before we do that, back by popular demand, it is your tip of the week. Hashtag tip of the week. So before we started recording this episode, Sally and I sat down and tried to think about what we should make this week's tip of the week. And my tip of the week is about ordering pizza. Now, last night, Sally and I ordered pizza from Domino's, and in order to deliver the, to deliver the pizza, Domino's was going to charge us a $2.75 delivery fee, which did not include the tip. So depending on how generous or stingy of a tipper you are, you're basically going to save anywhere between 4 and $10 by just going to pick up the pizza yourself. And if you live close enough to a pizza place to get it delivered, you live close enough to make it worth the price. So... That's what we did last night. We saved all that money, and now we have the equivalent price of half a pizza saved up for the next time we order pizza. That's it's a perfect great. solution. So that's go pick great. up your pizza instead of have it delivered. So that's a great tip of the week. But as I pointed out before we started recording, and as I will point out again now, the last time we had a tip of the week, which was two episodes ago, about a month ago, it was also about pizza. It so, was about reheating your pizza. So editorial question, do you see a problem with that? Because I don't. Pizza is one of the greatest things in the world. I agree. And I see no problem with having two consecutive tips of the week about pizza. Pizza is an amazing food. It's a superfood. <laughs> it has all of your fiber that you need. It has protein. And normally, if, especially if you have a meat pizza, at least two different types of protein. It has your dairy protein and your meat protein. And, and it has your protein. greens. You can top it with kale chips as we do. You can have green peppers on it. You can have spinach on it. And it has fruit in the tomato. So it is the most balanced you can get in a meal if you really think about it. That is interesting. I do agree, however, that pizza is wonderful and I love pizza. The only problem is that we just keep talking about pizza and people are going to think that that's all we eat. It is sadly not all we eat, <laughs> but it should be. I also want to point out that we only ordered Domino's because we were returning home from a trip and we needed food fast and it needed to be pizza. So in a pinch, Domino's is great, but we still love our homemade pizzas better. It's, I mean, our homemade pizzas are my yeah. favorite pizza ever. Right. Yeah. Exactly. So that's a great tip of the week. I definitely support that. However, I think that in the interest of having a non-pizza tip of the week, I have this tip of the week to offer. And that is if you work out and are in the market for new athletic wear, you should go to the Under Armour outlet store online. Under Armour has quality, obviously everyone's heard of it, quality athletic wear, but it's really expensive. And it's, I have a hard time shelling out that much cash. Even I do for not have wear, a hard time Even when out I work out cash. as often as I do, but still it's just so expensive. So yeah, like I said, I don't have a hard time shelling out that much cash. Sally and I are... Uh, we, I would say we have different tendencies when it comes to spending money. <laughs> <laughs> and I am a huge booster for Under Armour. You know, some people are Nike folks. Other people are Adidas or Adida folks, however uh, you say it. I'm an Under Armour person, and Under Armour is almost all I wear. Outside of the office. Right, yeah. I, I, unfortunately, I can't get away with Under Armour in the office. Outside <laughs> of the office, it's game on, protect this house, Under Armour. So... 
But that's why the outlet store is the best of both worlds. You don't have to spend as much money. No, the outlet store is great because you can spend the same amount of money and get twice as many clothes. (laughs) Or you can spend half as much money. You can spend the same amount of money and get (laughs) twice as many clothes. So anyways, my tip of the week is if you need new athletic wear, go to the Under Armour outlet store. You can find great tops and whatever you're looking for all for a much lower price yep tops and bottoms <laughs> and, hats, <laughs> and outerwear and, gloves, and shoes and everything every, everything you could yeah. dream of so you get today two tips of the week it's the online did you mention it was online yes it's okay online. sorry yeah i don't know if there are physical stores but we get i think there online. are outlets but i don't know if there are like and you get free shipping and free returns uh yeah i think you have to spend 50 dollars for that okay but that's but we hard. did yeah yeah so anyways, that's their second tip of the week. There it is. And now we are going to talk about our recent travels. As I pointed out, we were traveling recently. We had to get Domino's because we got back late. So we were traveling. We were visiting Zach's family. Yep. And... Yeah, this, is, this isn't really so much about the travels as it is true. about an experience that I had while traveling. Right, right. So those of you who are longtime listeners of this podcast will remember talking to Julia last season. I think episode three. Episode three, when Julia talked to us about raw milk and the wonders of raw milk. Well, I'm happy to announce that I've now tried raw milk because my (laughs) mom is on this raw milk kick. Apparently it's... And their state recently passed a law that allows them to purchase raw milk because not all states allow you to do that. Right, and that's what Julia is working on in, in Colorado. Right. But yeah, according to Julia... Raw milk has all these health benefits. Um, and it would be the one thing that she would have if that was the only food she could have for the rest of her life. So I opened up my freezer and there's raw milk. Fridge. Now, to my dis... Uh, yeah, <laughs> it was not a freezer. <laughs> opened up the fridge uh, in my parents' house and there was the raw milk. Now, to my dismay, it was not in one of those like old-fashioned glass That'd be pretty milk cool. jugs. Um, it was just in a standard you know, half-gallon plastic carton, but labeled raw milk and all of that. So I tried it. Gotta it say, like you were drinking a cow. It tasted or like milk. Oh, it tasted no different from any other milk I've had. Wow. So kind of underwhelmed by that. I wasn't brave enough to taste it, so I'll just take your word for it. Yeah. I, yeah. I don't know. I just. All right. It was fine. I mean, no yeah. complaints about it, but it also didn't wow me. It wasn't like this is what I've always been hoping milk would taste like. No. Oh, okay. No. And it was weird though, because I was thinking about that, how it tasted so normal. And then I was thinking back to our conversation with Julia when she said that if she could have one food for the rest of her life, it would be raw milk. Julia has a very high opinion of raw milk. Yeah. After Zach tried the raw milk, I texted Julia and told her that he was finally trying it. And she said that obviously she loves the raw milk. And she said, tell him to drink it up, that it's nature's only perfect food. And he could live on that even if he never ate anything else in his life. So I doubt that. <laughs> I very highly doubt that. It sounds like a terrible way to live. It sounds like raw milk is a superfood, according to Jules. I think my mind would just give up on life if I had to have that <laughs> and that alone for the rest of my life. All right. Which is not to knock raw milk. It's just to say that it's kind of like water. You know, I mean, <laughs> water's good, but I wouldn't just want to have water for the rest, for the rest of my of life. Your life yeah. And I couldn't survive more than 40 days on that diet. So. <laughs> All right. Well, raw milk. Raw milk. So moving on to another topic, uh, <laughs> let's talk about our new Netflix obsession. Yes. yes. 
So just last Friday, Netflix released the first season of one of its newest shows starring and produced and directed by Aziz Ansari, who, if you are familiar with Parks and Rec, he was Tom in Parks and Rec. Yep. And he has teamed up with the director slash producer of Parks and Rec, or I think he's one or the other, or maybe both, Alan Yang, and they have created this new show on Netflix called Master of None. And we heard about this, actually Sally first heard about this through an interview on NPR's Fresh Air mm-hmm. uh, with Aziz Ansari and Alan Yang, uh, where they talked about the making the making of the show, their intent behind it, and told a little bit of their life stories. And those life stories actually come through in the show because starring in the show are uh, the real parents, at least of Aziz Ansari. I'm not sure if it is Alan Yang's real parents yeah, as well. Yeah, I'm not sure about that either. But um, it's really interesting. It's it's Aziz Ansari's and Alan Yang's commentary on really modern our society. Life. Yeah, yeah. Uh, a lot of on mo- modern romance, which makes sense because Aziz Ansari recently co-authored a book about modern romance, talking about his parents' arranged marriage and how that compares to romance and dating today. And so far, we watched episode two of the show last night, and there was a very uh, implicit, although heavily implicit, so almost explicit criticism of uh, the modern tendency to get engaged in our cell phones in front of us instead of the person we're talking to, or to ignore our elders, our parents, and forebears uh, for the sake of cheap entertainment. Uh, and it was, it was just an interesting examination of modern society it has been so far. And the more I read Aziz Ansari and watch his work, the more I realize what a, what a serious thinker he actually is. Yeah. And that's made me think about how the comedians that I most admire, we've talked about Stephen Colbert on this podcast before, are actually really deep thinkers and use comedy as a way of producing actual thoughtful commentary yeah, on the yeah. world, which is kind of cool. Yeah. Yeah. They really get their audience members to think deeper about society without even realizing it, I think. Right. With yeah. The, John the Stewart, Stephen Colbert. I would argue Jimmy Fallon as well. And of course, Aziz Ansari. And there are others, but those are just you know, four of my favorites. So Yeah. So you're laughing along thinking, this is just all good entertainment and with maybe not realizing that they're making these subtle or not so subtle remarks about about our world at large. And Master of None appears to be, at least in the first two episodes, just that. Yeah, now what we're giving is not an unqualified recommendation. Master of None is not uh, appropriate viewing for all audiences. There's a good amount of objectionable language and some objectionable thematic content. I think the writing on it is TV mature. Uh, because it's on Netflix, they can do things that they couldn't do on cable otherwise. But it's an interesting show, nonetheless, and could be worth checking out if you do due diligence and make sure that it is appropriate for uh, the audience that you are with. Yeah, and if you already appreciate Aziz Ansari, I think you'd definitely appreciate what he's doing with this new show. So final topic before we get started with the meat of this episode, let's talk about the books we're reading, Sally. Yes, we haven't talked about that in a while. And I'm going to sound like broken record, but I am done finally with the book that I mentioned like way back when in season one, um, Dorothy Sayers got Well, in Night. fairness, you hadn't started this book in season one. You just mentioned true. that you wanted to read it. That's true. That's so true. So you weren't actually reading Gaudy Night for that long. Right, you, right. It's just been on your list for a long time. Yeah. And then I think I, I mentioned it. there are books it. that have lived on my list for years. Yeah. Not, okay. Not exaggerating. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. 
So but I did. I do think I mentioned it a, a second time, and now I'm mentioning it a third time to say that I have finished it, and I loved it so much and really appreciated Dorothy Sayers' writings that I've moved on to the next book in that series. So it's not the sequel because Gaudy Knight isn't the first in the series, but it's the one that immediately follows that called Busman's Honeymoon. And I've just started it, but I'm really excited to read it. It's another mystery. It has the same characters, at least the two main characters are the same. So I'm really excited about it and I'll have to let everyone know what I think of it. I'm, so I'm can done. you reveal why the title of the first book is Gaudy Knight even even though I don't want to know the plot of the book. Um, sure. A spoiler. Yeah. So it it starts the night that they are having this reunion at her college in Oxford. And it's called a gaudy night. I think that's right. Uh-oh, I should have. So is this like one of the college balls? Um, it's a reunion for mm. uh, for people who've already been to the college. Gotcha. So yeah, it's out of session. Like the students who are current students are not there. Yeah. And... And that's when the first event, murder. not murder, oh, okay. but like the first mysterious thing happens okay. in the whole chain, the sequence of events that happens. So gotcha. that's when the mystery begins is at the gaudy night. Cool. Well, my latest book is called, uh, I just forgot, <laughs> In the Garden of Beasts. Ah, uh, yes. This is an Eric Larson book. Uh, Eric is spelled with a K. E-R-I-K. He's written several books. Yes. I know I've read Devil in Devil the White, in White City. City. Yeah, about the sh- uh, in Chicago, the World Fair. Yep, 1908. Something like probably that. Probably got that date or wrong. Or 1898. I don't know. Devil in the White City. have not read that one, but that's on my really list. Really good, really good. This is the first Eric Larson book I've read, which is, um, which is going to lead me to my next comment. But Devil in the White City, uh, Thunderstruck, about... Uh, Doctor, I think it was Holly Crippen, and uh, how he was the first criminal to be arrested en route on the Atlantic because of the use of the wireless telegram. Wow, that's cool. Yes. And his fourth one that I know of, at least, is Dead Wake, about the sinking of the uh, Lusitania. Oh, wow. But the thing I appreciate about Eric Larson is his meticulously researched history yeah because these aren't novels no no definitely not it's all true i mean he says in the preface you know in my typical style where i've included quotes that's a direct quote from someone's journal or diary or you know their words themselves and most of the story uses quotes but it's all factual it all happens but he tells it in a very narrative style uh not quite like a novel because you don't have the dialogue of a novel right right exactly so it's not a novel it's not written in first person um it's written in third person but it's, it's very narrative, so it has the flow of a novel. Cool. Uh, and has the grip of a novel. And what's yours about? So In the Garden of Beasts is about uh, Hitler's Berlin, basically. Berlin and the, the wider Germany as Hitler comes to power uh, as chancellor, eventually as Führer. Uh, and the American ambassador, uh, Ambassador Dodd, and his family uh, while Hitler is doing this. Hmm. I'm about a third of the way done. It's a really fascinating story, and I'm learning a lot because... I don't know much about Germany in the interwar years. Most of my study has come uh, in either the World War One years or the World War II, two years without a whole lot of attention to the interwar years from a domestic perspective, uh, certainly from an international perspective, but not from a domestic one. So I'm learning a lot. Cool. It's pretty cool. And are you reading this on your Kindle? I am, yeah. The new Kindle <laughs> Paperwhite. It's great. I still love it. Uh, we, uh, as Sally mentioned, uh, traveled to see my family and I was able to take the Paperwhite and get a lot of reading done on the plane because... It 
fit very nicely into my luggage along with all of Esther's books. <laughs> and uh, yeah, it worked out great. Nice. And I am still reading the actual copy of, or not the actual copy, but the book copy of Dorothy's Ayers, Busman's Honeymoon, even though I started it off on the Kindle because the library was closed right before we were about to leave, so I wasn't able to get the physical copy. So we downloaded the free sample from Amazon. Yes. And I just felt like something was lacking, but I honestly didn't try it long enough to say one way or the other. You're going to you're gonna eventually be a Kindle person. <laughs> That's your prophecy? Yeah. All right. It'll happen. <laughs> All right. Well, this chat has been fun, but it's time to talk to Brandon. So listen up because this, what you're about to hear, this is Brandon. Oh, Lord, you have searched me and you All right, so there it is. That was Brandon Showalter, as I mentioned. Uh, really incredible stuff. And we're fortunate enough to have Brandon right here on the call with us. Brandon, welcome to the show. Hi, Zach. How are you doing? Doing really well. Good to have you. Glad to be here. Thank you so much. So Brandon, uh, first of all, incredible song. You have a very incredible talent. And, and I just want you to, to talk a little about this song. So the title of the song is Wonderfully Made. Uh, tell us a little bit about um, what the song means. Well... 90, probably 95% of the text is straight out of Psalm 139. And it's, I mean, it's probably, I mean, I, one of my favorite Psalms. I, I camp out a lot in the Psalms. And so the, the vision for the song was I just wanted to set my prayer life to music because when I don't know how to pray, I just read the Psalms out loud. I mean, I, it's, it really do spend a lot of time there. So I think it was St. Augustine who said, he who sings prays twice. And so I figured, well, I'm just going to double my prayer life here and set this song to music. So I think it, I, I guess what it would have been was, when was it? Yeah, the fall of 2013, when I just popped my Bible open on my keyboard and turned to Psalm 139, I said, okay, let's, let's do this. And something just sort of came out of me. I just really how it all happened. Um, I found a an introduction that I liked, and all of a sudden I just was able to craft a melody and interweave the text of Psalm 39, you know, give or take a slight adjustment for syntax. I was able to fit the lyrics, um, fit the words of the psalm to the melodic lines I was working with, and I mean, it just kind of happened. I mean, I, I sometimes I get a song rather quickly, and sometimes it takes sort of months and I piece it together. This one was one where God gave it to me, honestly. That's, that's, how it, that's how it happened. Well, that kind of preempts my next question. I was going to ask you about your creative process. I mean, what does it look like? And you kind of just explained it for this song, but I know you have other songs. So how does the creative process vary from song to song? Is it, is it always something that you find you just sit down at the piano and it kind of comes to you? Or are some of them more laborious than that? And do you, do you usually start with a text or do you, do you create your own text beforehand or after? Well, I am just learning. I mean, let me tell you, it was it was it took me a while to even get to this point where I was actually writing songs that I liked and was proud of, because I was one of those. 
and I still am to a certain degree, one of those perfectionist types that if I didn't like the way something started, I'd just scrap the whole thing and start over. But I guess the hurdle that I got over was I had to realize that if I'm ever going to produce something that is worth sharing and disseminating, I'm going to have to finish what I start, even if I don't really like it. And, you know, all artists have you know, paintings, I guess you could say, that they, they don't like as much or they just, they, they're working with it and they just don't like it. But it's, it's part of the creative process that you continue to keep producing. And as you <clears throat> produce and produce and produce, you'll stumble upon a masterpiece. And your ratio of good to mediocre will improve. And <clears throat> so for me, it was just, it's just this resolution like, okay, I'm, I'm going to finish this. And I don't even know where it's going to end up, but I can't stay in this sort of perfectionist struggle where if I'm not liking the way something sounds, I'm just going to quit and tear it up and start over again. So that was, I think, the biggest hurdle to get over. But as to your question, no, it's never formulaic. I don't always start with a text. I don't always start with a melodic line. It starts differently every time. And I think part of the process, honestly, is just making the time to sit down and explore and poke around and see what kind of new things um, are rolling around in my head. But as a believer in Jesus, I believe that the Holy Spirit indwells me and I get to participate in the restoration of all things. Uh, and he's full of ideas. And so I just sort of start a conversation sometimes while I'm at my keyboard. And so I've got my Bible there. If I'm writing a song that's, you know, that's worshipful or something, I'll, I like to, I like it to be theologically sound so you can't go wrong with the Bible. Um, but no, it's different. Sometimes it'll just be if I see a poem that I like or if I've got this little tune that I've heard from a movie soundtrack. In fact, one of the songs on my album was uh, there was a, a, a piece of a just of a phrase of one of the one of the songs from the soundtracks of the soundtrack of uh, what was it? Oh, yeah. East of Eden, uh, that movie John Steinbeck. And there was a phrase from one of the soundtracks that I was sort of working with this little phrase and I was tweaking it and modifying a little bit. And that phrase ended up being a rather inconsequential piece of the song, but it was how it started. And it sort of morphed into something a whole lot different than what I had thought it was from the beginning. But I can't, I can't give you a formula for my creative process because it doesn't really even make sense. But there are certain things that if I don't know where to start, I'll just say, all right, Holy Spirit, come and what do you want to do today? And usually something will come in the next few minutes and I'll just start exploring. Do you see yourself pursuing a full-time music career eventually or is this just a one-off kind of project? Oh no, it's not a one-off project. I'm writing more songs now. I, my time is more limited these days, but I'm definitely hoping to pursue that because that's really what makes me come alive most. It's, it's what gives me life. It's singing keeps me sane, as I like to say. Well, and I think I it's time for Josh Groban to be supplanted by someone else, too. So. Uh, <laughs> oh, <laughs> well, I'm not looking to supplant anybody. I'd like to sing with them. That'd be fun. But I, um, no, I, I, I absolutely have to pursue this because my heart just comes alive when I sing. It's just, it just liberates me. I, I, I absolutely love it. It's my favorite thing to do by far. So, but 
I'm just uh, following the creative process and making connections and networking and doing a lot of different things. In fact, actually, this, this psalm, wonderfully made, Psalm 139, that's, that's what it's based on. I'm actually going to be singing it this weekend for a benefit concert for a fundraiser for a local uh, pro-life group that <clears throat> it's called the Tepeyac Family Center. They do amazing work here in Northern Virginia where I live. Uh, they offer free medical services and care, health care to women facing crisis pregnancies. And oh, so Psalm cool. 39 yeah, has some amazing words in it about even before I was born, you knew me and fearfully and wonderfully made. I think if there was ever a psalm for the pro-life movement, it's Psalm 139. Um, so there are opportunities like that where I'll have the chance to sing. And, you know, with every opportunity comes an opportunity to make connections and meet people and get my my music into the hands of people who will listen to it and share it with their friends. So I don't know where it's all going, but I'm just putting one foot in front of the other and continuing to dream and who knows what what will happen but i'm just creating something for god to bless and see where he takes it so tell us a little bit more about your album where can where can we find that uh how many songs are on it and what do you see in the future in terms of projects if you're going to try to make this a full-time thing well the album is called song of psalms i like i said earlier it's my prayer life set to music and i i wanted to do uh, an extended play of um, the word proclaimed in song. And so I, it was just this idea I got during my second year of Bible school. And I did this thing on a shoestring budget, but it's amazing to see what. Sounds happened. pretty good for a shoestring. Oh, well, thank you. It, I was, it was, I mean, it was ridiculous. All the hoops I had to jump through to get this thing done, but it was ultimately very very worth it and it has opened a lot of doors and it's it's been great to have actually had the experience of getting in a studio and to have lived a dream um it's available it is on itunes and on amazon my website www.brandonshowalter.com b-r-a-n-d-o-n-s-h-o-w-a-l-t-e-r.com and yeah it's five songs we'll definitely link to that on our blog no, thank you <laughs> Yeah, the, the vision was just to create a a very prayerful, worshipful um, you know, settings of the Psalms, and I hope to continue that in that vein for my next project. But I want to branch out a little bit more too, um, and not just be a narrow focus. In fact, some of these songs that I've been writing lately that are going to be on the next album have there's it's a little bit more broad. I've I've still used some of the lyrics from a lot of the Psalms, but I've sort of captured some of my own, uh, my own thoughts and the cries of my own heart and other scripture and other thoughts. And it, yeah, I'm, it's a, it's a learning curve, but I'm having a lot of fun with it. So it's, uh, yeah. It's and when can we expect, the other. when can we expect that album? Uh, you know, I'd hoped that it would come out in November, but I've run into a few hurdles, which it's going to take a miracle for that to happen. But hey, that's happened before. So we'll see. <laughs> I, definitely, um, if not November, then hopefully by February or March of 2016. That's great. Well, good luck. Thank you. Yeah, well, stay tuned for that. And uh, we will definitely link uh, to your stuff on our blog, like Sally said. For our listeners, check out brandonshowalter.com. 
Uh, and to play us out here and transition to our next segment, we will listen to some more of this very impressive song, Wonderfully Made. Brandon, thanks so much for joining us. It's been fun to talk to you. Thank you, Zach and Sally. So appreciate you having me. Your works are wonderful And I know that full well I am fearfully and wonderfully made Let your name be praised And before a word is on my lips here with Janet Easter. She is co-founder and style editor of Verily, which is an online women's magazine. Janet, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you for having me. It's great to be here. Yeah, we're really excited to have you. So just to start off, tell us about Verily and why you started it. What makes it different from other women's magazines like Cosmo or Glamour? Sure. Yeah. So Verily is really a complete alternative to sort of the mainstream women's media that you see today. We are really trying to be an authentic, wonderful, beautiful space for women to come and read about the topics that they love, fashion, lifestyle, um, culture, and and most, I mean, I think one of our most popular <clears throat> topics is relationships as well. And so we are really trying to help women become the best versions of themselves, where a lot of other magazines start on the premise that you're not enough, that there's always more weight to lose. There's always shinier hair to be had. There's always more, you know, it's crazy. I mean, the, the headlines that you see. Um, <clears throat> so uh, Verily is really, um, it's just a, a very stark difference. And I think it's it's something that we really believe in. And we, we think the founding team wanted it ourselves. And we realized that we weren't, weren't alone. Um, and Verily really came about with a bunch of a bunch of women uh, in New York City. Myself, I had a little bit of background in fashion. I worked for Elle magazine in the fashion news department, and uh, I interned there for a little while. And then I worked for Elle.com afterwards. And through that experience, um, I just it, it was really like the devil wears Prada. <laughs> <laughs> it was just so much pressure, so much. Um, it was, it was quite negative. It was very cutthroat. And I, I realized, you know, being a part of a fashion magazine and a huge, you know, a huge house <clears throat> coming from a huge publishing house, I didn't, I didn't realize or see what, what were we doing that was positive for women? How was this helping anybody? And I went through a personal um, conversion as well through that, that time in my life, sort of post-grad, um, where I really just learned about the, I never knew what, you know, what my faith or what the church taught about the dignity of women, about, um, you know, the feminine genius, about femininity and how powerful and wonderful and beautiful women really are. And uh, even, and personally, just even the idea of modesty, which still makes me shudder a little bit today, but that 
a true understanding of modesty and, and that it's really quite empowering for women in the best sense of that word. And it can be so beautiful. So I, uh, coming from Elle magazine and then going through this kind of personal conversion and then wanting to see a high quality, professional, beautiful, stylish, modern shoot, you know, something visual to sort of turn to that really respected women and their dignity and didn't objectify or didn't put women in a compromising position. Um, that was really sort of the catalyst for me. And then uh, my co-founder and I met uh, shortly after this this time period when I was researching and looking at how do we, you know, how do I start a fashion magazine that, that can do this? Um, and she was working at finance, uh, in finance at the time. And we were talking over brunch with a bunch of other women and everyone was lamenting, oh, how awful is, you know, media to women and all these images and all these messages. Uh, it was just crazy. And so I brought up the idea of starting a new fashion magazine and Kara Eschbach, my co-founder, she piped up and said, well, let's do it now, like right now. <laughs> <laughs> and that was, that was back in 2011. I can't believe that was, uh, that long ago. Um, it seems long ago. <laughs> seems <laughs> four like years. That is a while ago. Four years. So Verily was born. The idea of Verily was born four years ago, um, very organically. And uh, a bunch of women from all different backgrounds all felt that there was something lacking for them. And, um, and to have really thoughtful, beautiful content. Uh, we started that <clears throat> process four years ago. We were we actually started with the print magazine and we were in print in 2013 and the last issue being carried in Barnes and Noble across the U S in the past two years, we've really focused on transitioning to being a content website for media content website for women. Um, and this, it's really beautiful because we're able to reach hundreds of thousands of women, much more so uh, in a way than we were with the print. So that's, that's kind of where we are today. I've heard about Verily before because I, I think on Upworthy or BuzzFeed or something like that, I saw something about your Photoshop policy, which is very different from other magazines. So can you tell us about that a little bit? Sure. Uh, when we started, it's interesting, we're kind of heralded as, heralded as one of the first no Photoshop magazines uh, to exist. And we, we sort of laugh about that because it was something that was sort of organic or sort of something we took for granted. We never thought to make a no Photoshop policy. We just, we just didn't Photoshop. <laughs> so it was um, really interesting because one of our first shoots that we did, we did a one piece swimwear uh, shoot out in LA. We had two models uh, that had one girl was covered in head to toe freckles and another girl had uh, a few moles and little beauty marks uh, across her back. And there was one image of them sort of sitting on a beach blanket, chatting with each other. And we, we put that in the magazine at the time. And we had so many people email us and call us and just celebrate the fact they thought, oh, you kept her moles, you kept her freckles. And we thought, well, yeah, we, <laughs> of course, because we, we really believe that, you know, the little wrinkles, the little, the little, um, idiosyncrasies and all those little quirks about us as women really make us beautiful. There's no need to, to take those away. So our no Photoshop policy, we decided we're like, well, we're doing this already. Maybe if it's resonating that much with women, we'll just, you know, sort of uh, publicize that we have a no Photoshop policy, which is really that we'll never alter the face shape nor the body shape of any of our models. Um, and ever take away any um, any of their skin texture or anything like that. And so 
uh, it's really been um, amazing to see how hungry uh, people are for that. And we, we just had no idea uh, the difference to see a happy, healthy women and to see them as just as they are, I think is really, it speaks volumes. And it was really, um, really hopeful for a lot of our readership. Well, this really relates to what you were just describing, but how do you see your role as style editor? Can you speak a little bit more about how that role fulfills Verily's mission? Sure. So um, it's interesting. Part in our internal editorial philosophy is really show and don't tell uh, with our writing, but also with, with our visuals and with our photo shoots. And I think um, for me personally, I really believe fashion is a powerful, powerful tool to communicate who we are, who we want to be, and to really, for women to really learn to, to embrace and sort of celebrate, um, rather than, I think, I think sometimes women can either hide behind fashion or reject fashion as something bad or, or vain or whatever you might call it. Um, so I really came in thinking, I want to show a totally different story, a totally different vision of what fashion can do for women. And again, it was through working with photographers, working with stylists, working with the industry, which is really interesting <laughs> coming from our mission of really trying to help women be the best versions of themselves and to not objectify, to not sort of have a narrow vision of beauty. So it was really interesting, I, um, you know, that process. But for me, I think we really you know, I really want to curate to show fashion that complements rather than compromises a woman's dignity and to do that without having to say it. So it's simply through the visuals that we create. It's simply through the fashion advice that we're giving. You know, we never want to speak at women. We're sort of, you know, right there with them in a conversation, just sort of proposing these different ideas or showing these different images as inspiration, but also something that can be really attainable. Um, and I think, I mean, that for me, it's, it's amazing how I didn't really realize how powerful imagery has been on women. And that's been sort of my main focus as a style editor is to really create different imagery. They say, um, I think the average is after three minutes of reading any fashion magazine, 75% of women feel worse about themselves. Wow, that's <laughs> incredible. That's, if you think about three minutes, you're not really reading much. You know? No, no. You may not even be reading anything. You're just, like you said, looking at the images. Exactly. And I think, uh, gosh, 68% of women, American women, say they uh, take their ideal body shape from magazines. Wow. Uh, that's, that's where they are, you know, they're looking to magazines because I think culturally magazines have the ability to hold up what is desirable, what is beautiful. And every woman wants to be beautiful and they want to be loved <laughs> and they're looking to magazines. And so to provide a different, not only different content with a very different worldview, um, but to also provide those something as seemingly sort of uh, silly as a fashion shoot <laughs> can actually be very powerful yeah. uh, and very, uplifting for women. So Janet, if you were to point us to an article or an item from Verily that best captured Verily's mission, we could you know link to our listeners and send them to Verily's site. Is there one that stands out in particular? Gosh, that is a good, good question. Um, goodness, there's so many art. I mean, there's so many articles on Verily's website. We, we publish uh, three to four articles every single day. That's impressive. Um, yeah, it's a lot. It's amazing. There's quite a team working behind all this. But I would say for me personally, especially from the style section, uh, we have done a series of runway to real way where we take uh, fashion trends from the runway and sort of like translate them to everyday real women. And it's one of my favorite 
favorite pieces that we do because we take everyday real women, volunteer models or friends of ours, and we just sort of show how to um, curate fashion and also sort of use it to really highlight the best of who they are. And it's amazing to see the transformation for these women. I love, you know, that after a photo shoot, they'll say, I've never felt this beautiful in my whole life. I've never, no one's ever spent this much time and attention um, with, towards me and with me. Uh, so that's been really rewarding. So it's called, it's a runway to real way, uh, feature. We've done that in the, in the past years and it's something that I still, uh, we really love to do. And, uh, I would say one of the most interesting pieces, and this was, this may be a, a few years back, but it's, I think it's really evergreen. We had a great article on, you know, is a higher education wasted on stay-at-home moms? And I thought it was so, you know, unique and so different and so needed to have a personal story of a woman sort of going through that experience of, you know, going to a Ivy League school, actually. And she ended up becoming a stay-at-home mom, where she, what she's doing right now in her life, and the kind of feedback that she heard from people it was really amazing for her to sort of share this perspective and the story. And I think that's um, so, something that we do very well at Verily is that we share and tell a lot of stories and about stories, especially for women that are usually culturally talked about um, work-life balance, you know, where our value really lies. And I think the narrative for women is mainly to kind of women should have and do it all. You know, you should be, climbing your climbing the career ladder and also being the perfect wife or the perfect girlfriend and having a perfect family and being able to do it all. And I think um, having this woman share her story and talk about how important it was for her to help form her children into better people and that her education was very much a part of forming her. And that made her the best, you know, the the, the mom that she she is today and I just I thought that it was just so beautiful and um, it's a really great example of sort of the different kinds of stories that we're doing at Verily um, and I think another one of my favorites too is uh, this is an old one as well it's uh, in the relationship section which is one of our biggest performing sections on our website especially because I think we're in one of the few places that women can get solid, good relationship advice based on empirical data, but also based on, um, you know, just stories and real life experiences. And we're not just talking about, you know, we don't talk about sex tips and ways to manipulate or how to, you know, get and keep a man. We're really <laughs> trying to do something totally different. Um, and also just that we try and touch base on relationships with our families, with our friends, with our coworkers. It's a much broader um, and more integrated sort of perspective on relationships. But the kind of questions of uh, can men and women really be friends or, um, you know, I think three ways, like three rituals to add to your, to add to your marriage to make it stronger. We're really just focusing on, on helping women thrive in the best way possible. So I think those are just a few snippets of the different types of content that we're doing at Verily. Well, that sounds great. We'll look forward to sending uh, our listeners your way to check out some of that. And I'm looking forward to reading some of those as well. Yeah, I remember reading the stay-at-home mom article and finding it very encouraging. And I do appreciate how you see women, you're you show showcase women not just as being a girlfriend or mm -hmm. um a potential dating partner but as a wife and a mom and a sister and a niece and a daughter <laughs> and yeah. i think you just show a very 
full, well-rounded look at women. Thank you. Yeah, that is our goal. So one final question for you here before we wrap up. Uh, Can men and women really be friends? No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) Just kidding. No, I'm actually, I'm actually curious to hear you talk about the future of the magazine. Where do you see it going from here? I know you've said you've been in print before, but you're not now. Do you see that again in the future? Do you see yourself going out into new media, starting up podcasts, things like that? You know, that, I mean, that's a good question. Internally, we are still figuring that out. I think the idea is that we we do want to grow as a media company. You know, right now we are a content website um, and we're reaching, um, we're climbing our way up to, you know, 300 plus unique viewers a month. And we really are trying to reach as many women as possible, but we really foresee you know, barely as being a much bigger media company and, and maybe someday doing more, um, different types of platforms, I guess I should say. Um, I, I think the print, you know, we all love the print and we, we do think it does say something culturally to be in print, but, um, where the sort of future is for magazines, um, I mean, women's magazines are, I guess, a little bit different, but, uh, we, we really think that we can have more of an impact right now, at least (laughs) to focus our attention on online. Uh, and we'll see, you know, we will certainly let our readers know if we end up doing something in the future with the print. Um, but for right now, we're really just focusing on, on growing as a content website and, um, possibly, you know, even bigger media company in the next few years. Well, that'd be cool. I mean, for my part, I think it'd be really neat if you guys could eventually become, uh, on the level of Vox Media, I'm not sure how familiar mm. you are with Vox, but a little bit, yeah. Yeah, so they run the news site Vox, headed up by Ezra Klein, and they also own SB Nation, which is a sports network, mm. and The Verge, which is like a technology blog, as is Recode, and they have this whole. It's basically a big media conglomerate, but hundreds of thousands of readers, if not millions, and really cool stuff. Right. And it'd be cool right. if Verily was able to set themselves up in you know a, a similar way, so you had all these different forms of yes. outreach and different sites to run. Yes, yes, we certainly, I mean, that's kind of our, our big plan. We, ha- we don't have specifics yet, but we do hope to grow to that, to that point. So, Well, definitely keep us posted on that. We really appreciate your work so far and admire okay. uh, all the good that Verily is doing. So thank, thank you for coming you. on the show yeah. and talking to us about it. We really Thanks appreciate it. Thanks so much, it. Janet. Sure, thank you for having me. We're back and about to wrap up this episode, but before we do that, we need to check the inbox. Great idea. Let's check the inbox. Hey, we've got something. Although this is not a letter or an email, but I did hear from Kevin, who uh, gave me an article in The New Yorker. Kevin listened to our most recent episode, specifically our conversation with Jordan about the new movie, The Martian, and uh, the article that Kevin gave me in The New Yorker is about several new books that have been written on Mars and really questioning the larger question of when humans will go to Mars, if ever. Cool. So it's a pretty interesting article. It is now posted up on our website along, uh, or in the blog post that accompanies this episode. So head there and check it out. Great. Thanks, Kevin. Well, this has been a great episode. Thanks to Brandon and Janet for being on the show. And if you would like to be on our show, you can email us. You can get in touch with us. Go to our website, vernacularpodcast.com. And you can email us at Zach and Sally at vernacularpodcast.com. Or if you just want to go straight to the questionnaire, which can be reached from our homepage, you can also just go vernacularpodcast.com slash questionnaire. And you can follow us on Facebook or you can like us on Facebook. Yep. Facebook.com slash vernacularpodcast. You can Follow us Correct. on Twitter. <laughs> yep. 
Which is at VernacularPod. Yep, twitter.com slash VernacularPod. And you should email us and tell us how you liked this episode. We need to get on that Insta-G. Yeah, that would be good. (laughs) (laughs) We're not on Insta-G yet. Not yet. That's Instagram for you Luddites. (laughs) So facebook.com slash VernacularPodcast, twitter.com slash VernacularPod, or just VernacularPodcast.com. Yeah, and if you decide to email us, just weigh in. Let us know what books you're reading or whether or not it's okay to talk about pizza two weeks in a row whether you will buy your clothes in alice store or drink raw milk or watch master of none the important questions of life (laughs) all right it's been a lot of fun thanks so much for listening once again for vernacular podcast i'm zach and i'm sally have a great week when i'm by her